Ever need something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. We decided to take a route down that we we saw on the way up that looked like it was going to be a lot easier. That was an illusion, as it often is. We've been pounding hard over the last six months of this Bear Grease podcast, diving deep into the Mississippi River, David Crockett, and the literary conman Asa Carter. These were some of my favorite series, but I need relief from the browbeating history and science. I fear we've all become too smart in our proclaimed, quote, pursuit of understanding the world. Remember when William Faulkner said you had to understand a place like Mississippi to understand the world? (laughs) I just need some regular old excitement. How about a fresh plate of harrowing stories with a tall glass of adventure and risk? That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? This is the first part in our series of wild stories from one of my favorite places on Earth, Alaska. America has been enamored and perplexed for the last 70 years by its sheer volume of wilderness, wildness, and its great beasts. Today we'll hear five stories from five storytellers about wild rivers, grizzly bears, widow makers, and even a cold night under the hide of a great beast. We've never done an episode like this before, and we're about to meet some great people. I really doubt you're going to want to miss this one. And she looked at me, and then she stood up and stretched her neck out and cocked her head, and then immediately went into a charge. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore.
Alaska is an anomaly. It's a deviation from the standard American state. In the late 1800s, naturalist John Muir called Alaska wilderness a temple, claiming the place was still in the morning of its creation. It's a giant place. As a grown man decades out of high school geography class, I find myself still trying to grasp its size almost like a math equation with symbols and multipliers I have never been trained to manipulate. It's hard to understand how big it is. The state is over 665,000 square miles, more than twice the size of our second largest state, Texas, and larger than our biggest three states, Texas, California, and Montana combined. Roughly 700,000 people live in Alaska, making it by far our most sparsely populated state. Purchased from Russia in 1867, you may have heard the term Seward's Folly. Secretary of State William Seward negotiated a price of $7 million. That's less than two cents per acre for the whole state. He was ridiculed for the purchase, like someone living in the plains of Kansas might chide his neighbor's purchase of a 100-foot yacht now parked in the driveway. Alaska would gain statehood in 1959, making it America's 49th state. But I'm not here to give you a history lesson. Remember, I said we're done with all that. Our first story is told by a man that I'm starting to feel like is an old friend of mine. His name is Billy Moles. Originally from Wisconsin, fresh out of high school, he fulfilled a lifelong dream when he headed to Alaska to become a hunting guide. Now, after 20 plus years of living that dream and spending over 100 nights per year in a tent hunting brown bear, caribou, sheep, and moose, Billy is no doubt an Alaskan wilderness veteran. Big fast water is the Achilles heel of a human moving across the landscape afoot. It's a natural feature that humans are almost completely unequipped to deal with. This first story is called The Rising River. Here's Billy. This story starts in a small farm in southern Wisconsin. A young boy by the name of Don Johnson was fishing on the Mississippi River with his brothers. Wintertime, they were on the ice, they were smoking cigarettes, and their dad was going to come by and pick them up. And so Don takes the cigarettes and was going towards offshore a little farther out and towards the current and was going to bury the cigarette butts in the snow. And when he went to do that, he fell through the ice. Long story short, he nearly drowns. And ever since then, Don is terrified of death by drowning. So... Forty years later, Don is my neighbor in Wisconsin, fellow farmer. I've known him on a little bit my whole life. But I'm 15, 20 years into guiding, and he comes to me. He's like, hey, I want to go caribou hunting. And so we put this hunt together, and Don is bringing his cousin Mike. So they're both in their late 50s, early 60s, and then Mike has his son Greg to come along. And it's a three-on-one hunt. And pretty much every time I've done a three-on-one hunt, it has turned into a debacle. But uh, against my better judgment, I, I agree to it. I hadn't connected all the dots back then as I have now. But I take these guys and we go up into the Northern Brooks Range early August. We show up into camp and they got all kinds of gear. And so the next morning we're eating breakfast, Heard a caribou starts coming through. Could see him about a mile and a half off, and we get into position. Greg shoots a really nice bull. 
it starts to rain. We get that bull taken care of the next morning, it's still raining, and we were in relatively flat open tundra, but right across the river there was a nice knob, and so what we were doing is we were walking across this creek, and then we'd hike up to the knob, and then we'd, we'd sit there all day in glass, we could see anything coming, you can see 5-10 miles in either direction, farther than you'd want to walk. This creek's ankle deep, maybe mid-shin at most when we first get there. and so. We're sitting on the hill, we're glassing for caribou, and this spot, this little, this little, the creek, we could see the creek out in front of us, and we're not paying it too much attention, but I could see there's a nice shallow riffle there. Anytime I'm hunting a creek, I'm always looking for access points, you know, easiest spots to cross a creek, and this, this creek was still so shallow, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a big issue. And we don't see anything the next day. Get back to camp that night and go to bed. Next morning, we're up eating breakfast, and I could see the creek was was rising, but it still was no big deal. Go back up on the hill, get fogged out. It's raining. Don't see anything the next day. So then the following day, same deal. We wake up. It's foggy. The river's still raining. The river's definitely coming up. But it kind of clears up early morning, and I just told the guys, I'm like, hey, man, we're, we're going to have to get out of here but it's too the ceiling is too low to fly so we can't get moved with a plane today regardless but let's go up on if we climb up on the hill we can sit for a couple of hours and you know if we don't we don't get anything we'll just come back and basically at that point we're going to wait for the have to wait for the the weather to lift cuz this is getting so high like it could flood out our camp cuz we were camped on a gravel bar so we climb up onto the hill and I'm looking at this river and I'm noticing that shallow spot that I had noticed a couple days before and I'm watching watching the river rise up on this big rock on the bank and I figured it was rising somewhere between an inch and two inches an hour. So I'm gauging and I just decide, hey, we've got until noon. Afternoon, if we haven't, we're not after something, we've got to be back to camp because it was about, it was up to our crotches when we crossed by camp that morning. And I knew that we could, on the way back, we would go back in that shallow riffle kind of below our, our glassing knob, which was about a half mile below our camp. But that was much, much shallower than where we were crossing at camp. But I, I knew that it was kind of pushing the limits of uh, what... I I was comfortable with it, but I just figured for Don and Mike particularly, it was going to be pushing their limits to be crossing that river. Well, as it turns out, about 11 o'clock, we spot this herd of caribou. They're about two miles off, and I just figured, hey, if we're going to go after any caribou today, let's go after them, give them a run. If they're not there, we'll turn around, we'll come back. So we run after these caribou. Where we're hoping they are, they're gone. Well, there's a ridge right up ahead of us, about a 10, 15-minute hike, and we could look over this lip. I said, well, they're probably right in there. And so we get up over this lip, and sure enough, there's, there's the caribou. They're about 1,000 yards off. So we sneak up around, go up in this next little ridge, trying to figure out if we, there was a way we could ambush them, and we get up there, and there's nowhere to go. There's just no way to really ambush them to get to them without them seeing us. And... The whole time in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm really nervous of this river crossing because now it's about 1 p.m. And, and I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to make the guys scared. 
and I just said, told the guys, hey, that river coming up, we're just gonna go right at these caribou. If they run off, that's fine, but we, we gotta take our chances here. And so they understood. So we just take off, we start going right towards the caribou. Well, just as we take off, they get up because they were bedded and they start feeding toward us. And I'm like, well, uh, let's just wait. But it, when looking back, I could just see all these little, little minute details were just pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope. You know, we had two more caribou still to kill and our hunt basically at this point is more than half over. But the caribou are working towards us and we sit and we wait. That takes another 20 minutes. Well, finally Don gets a shot opportunity. Boom, he shoots the caribou, it runs off, intermingles with the herd so we couldn't get a second shot uh, without risk of hitting another caribou. Beds down. Finally, I just take take my rifle and I just walk around and boom, and I just finish the thing off. I just, I just didn't have any patience because I wanted to get the thing killed and get back to camp. We're high-fiving, take some pictures. Don's happy, he's got a real nice caribou. We butcher the thing. I mean, we're working, I'm slicing and dicing and they're taking the bags and we're, we get this thing whooped up pretty quick. I said, all right, you guys got everything, let's go. And Don's like, well, I forgot my binoculars. And I'm like, what do you mean you forgot your binoculars? And he said, well, I think they're up on the hill where we shot from. I'm like, he's like, we can get them tomorrow. I'm like, no, we ain't coming back tomorrow. I said, you guys see that willow bush? I point to it, it's about three quarters of a mile away. I said, there's nothing between here and that willow bush. I said, you guys get hiking to that willow bush and you do not stop until you get to that willow bush. You sit there and you wait for me. And I was pretty direct and Don recognized that I was pretty direct. He's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. And I said, grab a couple candy bars and eat them as you walk. I said, like, we got to get back across that river. Again, I didn't want to, I wanted to be firm, but I didn't want to freak them out. So I run up to the top of the hill where we shot from and there was his binoculars and I still, I beat him down to the willow bush. And I can see they're tired. He's like, oh, can we take a break? I'm like, you guys can take a break when we get back to camp. Let's keep her moving. And they just kind of looked at me and they didn't argue. I think at that point, that's when they realized that, and they were, they were cognizant of the river coming up as well. So we hike about another mile and we, maybe a mile and a half, and we get to that shallow spot. We actually walk a half mile further down downstream of camp but we got to that shallow spot and holy smokes that river was angrier and darker i mean the water is just so silty there's no reading the river at that point i mean it's it's just covered over it's probably about gosh i would guess 70 yards across of just water and now this is up to our belt and it was darn near to crotch level almost the whole way across which three days earlier it was basically ankle deep and I told the guys, Don's like, oh my gosh. He's like, I don't know about this. And I'm like, Don, I, I don't know what our option, other options are. We could stay here, but you know, the clouds are still too low. Nobody can fly in here. There's no place to land on the other side of the creek anyways. And I said, why don't just let me go across and just watch where I go and go exactly where I walk. And I told him, undo your chest strap, only have your belt strapped and if you go down keep your head downstream and if you keep your head above water and if you have to shuck your pack off uh, and that's one thing i've learned you get in dangerous situations you got to keep instructions really really simple and so i go across not a big deal um, i mean it was deep but um, mike makes it across and then greg comes and he comes about three quarters of the way across and there was like a little island it was submerged but 
it was about knee deep water. And so Greg walks to that knee deep water and he sits there and he waits. I just told him to wait there and we have Don come across. We've all got trucking poles. Don makes it across, you can tell he's pretty nervous. He makes it to that island where Greg is. And it's only at this point, it's like 10 yards to get all the way across. And I just told Don, you got it. And that's the deepest channel in the river. And so I go about 30, 40 yards downstream of Don, just in case. And Don goes across and he's right in the heart of the channel. And of course you're in fastest water. That's where the rocks get small because the small one, or the rocks get big because the small rocks are swept downstream. And Don stumbles and then he kind of corrects himself. But in doing so, he puts too much weight on his trekking pole and he bends his trekking pole into the shape of an L. And looking back, I should have told him to just throw the thing in the river. But I, I didn't, he corrects himself and I said, you got it, you got it, literally four more steps and he's across the river. Well, Don, in his muscle memory, he goes to take a step and then he goes to take another step and when he did that, he put his other trekking pole down or tried to use it, the one that he had just snapped in half or as the shape of an L. And so when he did that and that support wasn't there, he goes down, boom, under the water. I mean, just like that. And now he, he pops up out of the water and it just, you know, happens like almost slow motion. He pops up out of the water and his, his eyes are like saucers and his mouth, he's just gasping for air, just like that. And he's floating down the river like a rubber ducky game at the fair. And I'm imagining that as he comes by, I'm just going to grab hold of him and just like pull him right to the bank and, you know, everything's going to be okay. But as he comes by and he's got the caribou antlers on his back, and again, that was a mistake of mine. Um, as I grab him and I try to pull him to the bank, I realize I should have been pulling him at about a 45 degree angle downstream. And I learned that after the fact. But as I pull him, I'm getting headway and all of a sudden he gets perpendicular to the current where he's straight out from me and I'm pulling. And then the next thing I know, he's just a little bit downstream of me. And then all of a sudden I feel the power of that water on his body, his pack, those caribou antlers. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting headway, but then all of a sudden it just, I'm powerless and I am pulled right out into the current with Don. And all of a sudden the bottom goes from underneath us. Like we can't feel the bottom at our feet at all. And we're like crappies just trying to get our mouth to the surface. And I'm a, I'm a pretty good swimmer. Don can just maybe stay alive on a perfect, you know, a perfect pool on a perfect day is about all, all he can really do as far as swimming. But right below us, this 60, 70 yard stretch of river narrows down to a 10 yard channel, if you will, and it's like raging white water. You can tell that there's a big dip in the, in the, uh, the bottom of the, the river there. And so that's about 20, 30 yards below us, maybe 40. And, I, and then it makes a hard 90 degree bend. And I just tell myself, man, if we get to there, we're dead. And I'm yelling at Don, get your pack off, get your pack off. And I'm reaching for him as I got a hold of him. And I'm trying to find his belt of his pack to try to undo it, but I can't find it. And Don's face is just like right in front of mine. And he, right away, his fear just kicks in as a, as a kid who nearly drowned. And he, his whole life, he's, his only fear, he said, was death by drowning. And he just yells at me, is this the end? Is this the end? And I'm like, get your pack off, get your pack off. And I can't find his buckle anywhere. And all of a sudden I just realized like Don's in shock. And at that moment I realized like I either let go or hang on. And ahead is what I call it just a raging torrent because that's basically what it was. 
And I'm just like, if we go there, we're dead. If, if we get that far, if we get that far, Don's dead. And maybe I, I got a chance. And I just realized it's like, I've got a decision to make. Either I hang on or I let go. And at that moment, I just figured, you know what? I'm as good with God as I'll ever be. My wife knows who I am. My kids know who I am, what I stand for, what I believe. And I just figured, you know what? If today's the day, if it's, if Don dies, I die with him. And, and it's almost like, I don't know, maybe within a second, you know, Don's still screaming, is this the end? And I'm, I'm just trying to tread water and swim side stroke with, with him and my toe and in tow. And right, just right as we hit that, that lip where that torrent, the angry torrent starts, I'm side stroking and all of a sudden I feel gravel in my toes. And I start digging the toes, my toes into the gravel and I get a couple of steps and I take about two steps towards the shore as much as I possibly could. And we're kind of coming up out of the water, but we're still being sucked down into that torrent. And I just, John and I kind of both, I guess, lunge or in my mind, I'm just lunging trying to heave us both towards shore and just pray that wherever we land, there's not enough current to push us down into that torrent. And when we lunge and we land, we're about... We basically went underwater, but it was slack enough that we stayed there. And so we get up and like Don's coughing water and I'm coughing water. And, uh, you know, we just, Mike is there right there. Cause he was already across the river. He's like, are you guys okay? And we're like, yeah, and we get his pack off. We're like, where's your rifle? He lost his rifle in the drink. He's like, I don't care. He goes, I've, I've just never been so happy to be alive, you know? And, uh, yeah, I learned a lot on that hunt. Greg, he, he was able to make it across, no problem. Later after that, we made it back to camp. We get Don all dried out, you know. I mean, I made, I made a ton of mistakes. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. I let my pride, my ego, and the pressure, the pressure. And I kept, you know, I just pushed the envelope and I knew I was doing it, but I thought I'd get away with it. And it almost cost a man his life. So we get back to camp and uh, the weather later that evening it clears up and uh, Matt was able to fly in and uh, he was there to pick up meat but in the end we just decided that we'd fly Don out that night too because we were gonna have to move the next day anyway our camp was more or less flooding out but Don said that um, when he was flying out that night he said he, he found himself looking back as long as he possibly could and he only did he look forward when he could no longer see the camp and he said for some reason he goes i i didn't want to look forward and he said when i did look forward he said i realized that in in, in don said this is don speaking that my whole life i was looking back i was looking back and that fear of drowning he said i realized that it almost that fear almost killed me and he said i realized that at this point now I'm never going to let that happen again. I'm always going to look forward and don't look back with fear and regret. And to this day, Don says that he wouldn't change a thing about that hunt because it changed the trajectory of his life forever. And um, what I've learned in, in uh, Alaska hunting adventures is that adversity is one of two things. It's either cement that draws the people together or it's a wedge that drives them apart. And every Alaskan hunting adventure brings a new adversity it's a new challenge and what i've discovered in life is that on the other side of fear is freedom that was a wild story 
I've been following Billy for over a decade, watching his documentary videos about Alaska, and I read his book, Alaska and Me, years ago. Billy is now a hunting consultant, helping hunters who are wanting to go on big hunts, and he's doing a lot of public speaking events at churches and for groups all across the country about his adventures in Alaska. He's easy to find online if you're looking for him. What's the healthiest thing that you can do for your pet? Feed them what they were born to eat with Darwin's fresh, raw food for dogs and cats. Darwin's customized meal plans support their ancestral diet with high protein, moderate fat, and low carbs. From shinier coats and softer fur to improved digestion and gut health, the health benefits are easy to see. Plus, there are no fillers, grains, or natural additives. Just farm-fresh, raw ingredients like USDA meats and organic vegetables delivered straight to your door from the freshest raw meals possible. With over 20 years of experience, choose Darwin's to see your pet thrive longer. Go to darwinspet.com and try 10 pounds for $14.95. That's darwinspet.com. Here's a simple but meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. A digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pictures of all the things that they can't be there for, from family vacation to their grandkids' graduation. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code BEAR. That's A-U-R-A, frames.com, promo code BEAR. Terms and conditions apply. I've had a Helix Sleep mattress for over two years, and it is for sure the nicest mattress that I've ever slept on. I've slept much better in the last two years, been more comfortable than I have for my whole life, and that's true. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released Helix Elite Collection, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash clay and use the code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet and won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Our next story hails from the high altitudes of the Alaskan wilderness in mountain goat country. Years ago, Alaskan resident Carrie Kegler, at my request, wrote a story for us at Bear Hunting Magazine about a black bear she killed that was missing two-thirds of its lower jaw and had apparently been without it, presumably, for years. The beast was happy, fat, and old. When she wrote this story, it was clear to me then that Carrie wasn't your average outdoors person. Here's her story that we'll call Goat Country Night. My name is Carrie Kegler. I've been an Alaska resident nearly my entire life. My family moved up here when I was about four, so it's pretty much all I've ever known. And um, grew up in a hunting and fishing family, really outdoorsy. Our dad um, got us started with hunting and fishing and archery when we were really young. I believe my brother and I got our archery certifications when we were probably 14 or 15, so kind of give you an idea there like our background. 
So as an Alaska resident, we have a lot of opportunity here. We don't like to brag about it, but uh, we're very fortunate in that in one year, you could have a number of tags in your pocket. As a, as a generality, you could have black-tailed deer, um, five of them, caribou, moose, doll sheep. They're very generous with the opportunity here, bear hunters. We love it. You could take three black bears per season, and the season ends on June 30th and then begins on July 1st. So that's six bears a year, you know. You could take one brown bear per season as well. Lots of opportunity. So the story that I was going to share, it's my second goat hunt ever. But in the process, we learned a lot. Also got some reminders of things that you just don't do or maybe you should do. I guess I go back to kind of where this hunt began. In February of every year, it's kind of like Christmas for us because we, we get to find out whether or not we drew a, a, a tag. This year was in 2018. And uh, <laughs> I rarely ever get the opportunity to look up my own name. <laughs> yeah, I, it's one of those deals where by the time I wake up in the morning, a friend of mine has already texted me and said, hey, congratulations, you drew this or you drew that. Or, oh, bummer, next time maybe you'll have better luck. So this year, my friend Ryan had already texted me and said, hey, congrats on the goat tag, and uh, I'm sure you'll do great. Well, at that time, I didn't have a hunting partner, and it's actually pretty tough to find somebody that will commit to one, to a goat hunt, that is. And I had just started dating John Kruger. I told him that I drew the tag, and he said, great, when are, you know, when are we going to go? So from, from there, we kind of made our plans. And at the time, he was living in Arkansas for work. And uh, so... We'd made our plans and he flew up here. This hunt took place in early September. We had incredible weather. You couldn't ask for better weather. Clear, cold, great visibility. You could see for 30 miles, just, just perfect. So we flew into a glacial lake and uh, from there we got dropped off. We actually, we were being dropped off as four other goat hunters were being picked up. And uh, they were actually successful. Two of the four guys had goat tags. They both got, one got a billy, one took a nanny. I was surprised at the um, sparseness of the game bag for the fellow that had the nanny and asked him what had happened. And he said, well, when I shot her, she took a, a leap off of a cliff and uh, ended up down at the bottom and pretty smashed up. So he ended up climbing down there, rappelling actually, and, uh, and got her. But there wasn't a whole lot left. When you're hunting goats, they're almost always, especially by September, they're gonna be above, you know, they're gonna be above Alpine. They're gonna be in the rocks. They're gonna be, they're gonna be high. You can expect to see, see them skyline sometimes. And they're going to be in all the little nooks and crannies that um, 
and they'll perch themselves up there and they do that so that they can get a real good view of everything that's happening below them and they don't like things to be above them and uh, if you're going to be successful at taking one you got to be in good shape of course but also patient you can kind of pattern them for the most part I mean, if you, if you find one that you are certain is a billy, uh, they've got characteristics that set them apart from a nanny. Uh, they're usually a little dirtier. Their horns have more mass. But uh, they're also usually alone. So for this hunt, <laughs> we didn't actually get to pattern them so much. We really only came across one, one billy this time. And when we got to the hunting location, we made camp, set everything up, took another look at our topo maps, and, and we're just trying to make a game plan, make, uh, familiarize ourselves with the area, and uh, took a peek around. So we, we made camp and uh, went up and over, like I would call it like the foot of this mountain, just to kind of get an idea of what was on the other side. I mean, you can study those topo maps all you want, but... Um, you really get a feel for what it is that's there when you actually get your eyes on it. So we went up and over just exploring because in the state of Alaska, you can't hunt and fly the same day. So we went up and over and just did some exploring and, you know, curiosities getting us. What's over this ridge? What's over this one? And before we knew it, we spotted a goat. From there, we kind of just hung out, put him to bed, so to speak, and uh, went back to camp, made a game plan for the next day. And then as soon as it was light, we put some gear uh, in our our packs and uh, headed on our way. And one of the things I'll mention, too, with putting gear in your pack before you leave for just what you think is going to be a day hunt, um, if you've got that extra puffy you think is going to be a few ounces too heavy, put it in your bag. Put it in your bag. Uh, (laughs) And there's a reason I say that. So as we made our way away from camp, we had a a pin marked the last location we saw the goat the evening before. The way that the the terrain in this specific area uh, looks is you've got a glacial lake that we were dropped off at, and then you've got a a big gravel valley that was carved out by that glacier that left that lake. And as you get closer and closer to the toe of that glacier, you've got these braids, these gravel braids of just meandering little creeks and streams. Um, And it's all uh, runoff from this glacier that's essentially melting away. And then in front of that glacier, you'll see these big tills Uh, which are huge mounds of just whatever that glacier left behind. So we were near the lake, and we were making our way, instead of going up and over the mountain like we did the evening before, we went up this valley and decided about where we were going to start going up and over on the other end of this mountain, closer to the glacier. So... We did that. Uh, we had a pretty decent ascent. Nothing, nothing scary. Nothing um, really notable. I mean, it was tough. It was probably about a 1,200 feet uh, elevation change, I would say, from the bottom. 
So after hours of sitting patiently and glassing and looking, John and I decided that uh, we were just going to reposition ourselves and cover a little bit more, you know, real estate by um, splitting up. So uh, we're probably at this point about two and a half miles or so from our camp. So I, I get to like a little rocky outcropping and uh, just kind of looking around, and I I saw something glimmer, which it, I mean, it caught my eye. It almost seemed glassy, like it didn't belong, you know. I took my binos out, and sure enough, it was that billy goat. And what I had seen was the sun caught his horn in a way that it shined, like you could actually see the shine on it. That's what gave him up. And so uh, I went and found John, and we had about uh, 1,300 yards, I guess, between the goat and us at that point. Uh, But we were also probably about three or four hundred feet above him in elevation. So we, uh, we had to stay off the skyline and out of sight and, of course, be quiet. So we made our path and stuck to it and got to within 280 yards. And he was completely asleep, totally zonked out. And uh, so I get set up on, a ro- on this really big uh, flat rock because we didn't know how long he was going to be there. Sometimes they'll take naps. You catch them when they first lay down, and they could be napping for hours. So I get set up, and um, I did a, a couple of dry fires. And uh, at one point, I did a second dry fire, and I was absolutely certain that he heard it. Then he looks up, and John's moving around. He's a t- pretty tall guy, and... I can tell through the scope that this goat sees him moving around. And I tell him, hey, he sees you. And John says, well, good. Maybe he'll get up. And I said, uh, yeah, hopefully. So it happened very, very quickly. But he did get up. I fired as the moment he turned broadside. And he fell right down. Never moved. I was fortunate this one didn't go anywhere. We got down to him took the obligatory photos and all that and started field dressing him and caping him out. It had to be about four o'clock or so by the time that we, we left the kill site. So we got all the meat and everything in our packs and we're heading back towards camp. This is where we, we, made, we made a mistake. And I would say it's, we, we, broke, we broke one of those cardinal rules of mountain hunting and that being, you go down the same way you come up unless there is no other navigable route that's safe. We decided to take a route down that we, we saw on the way up that looked like it was going to be a lot easier. That was an illusion, as it often is. You can look at a mountain from one end to the next, and it looks smooth and, you know, unassuming, but... There's cracks and crevices in there that uh, you don't see unless you're right there. We took an alternative route down, thinking it was going to save time, and (laughs) it did the opposite. Um, We ended up in a couple of dead ends. We ended up on top of like uh, a huge glacial till, couldn't go anywhere. There was a, a river that was 
probably hip high and going very fast um, underneath a big sheet of ice. We had to go back up and around. By the time that we lost the light, we had come to a cliff face that was about 100 feet above where we needed to be. And uh, although we had headlamps, they just didn't cast enough light in that kind of terrain for us to, to safely navigate it. And we were, like I said, we were out of light. So the best option was for us to just stay put until we could see. And that's what we did. So again, this is September in Alaska um, and clear, clear skies. So that means uh, during the day, it's gonna be warm and at night, it's gonna freeze. It's actually gonna frost um, more often than not when it's that clear. It was probably at night, it was getting down to, I would say below freezing. It was cold, it was cold. And um, when we got to that patch of alders where we decided that we were gonna hang out for the night, try to sleep before it got light, we emptied our packs of our game bags full of meat, um, took the goat cape out, and we layered up with all the layers that we brought. And of course, we both had a couple of coats, puffy coats in our tent that we wish we'd stuffed in those backpacks. Uh, because uh, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a monumental regret, but it was what it was. So we had to make the best of it, and there was no sense in complaining about it. And we emptied our backpacks, we climbed into our backpacks, uh, kind of like a little gunny sack, you know, and we covered up our cores with that billy goat cape and on top of those backpacks and um, just tried to huddle and stay as warm as we could for the, for the duration of darkness. And I remember looking up at the sky thinking, man, this, this is going to be awful. <laughs> and it was. It, it, was uh, it was the coldest I think I've ever been. It was severely cold. I think maybe the two of us maybe got an hour of sleep if you wanted to add it all up. But as soon as that sun came up, we were up with it and repacked our bags and got to it. I can't speak for John, but I know that I've never been happier to get back to my tent. Um, we were just absolutely exhausted. And, uh, you know, like I, like I said, uh, we, we definitely left that hunt with some lessons and some reminders. Um, you know, know your limits and don't ignore them. And um, go down the way you came up if it's safe. And uh, bring that extra layer with you. Uh, those few ounces aren't going to hurt you. Sleeping under a goat hide on the side of a mountain is rough, and it's certainly a pretty Alaskan thing to do. That was a good story. Well, the next story I'm going to tell you. The best I can recall, I've never told this tale publicly, though it seared me with a humbling respect for Alaskan backcountry that has never left. It happened in 2015 on my first ever trip to Alaska. I call this one The Widowmaker. I want to tell you a story about Alaska. 
A little backstory would be that in 2013, I acquired Bear Hunting Magazine. I had not worked in the outdoor industry full-time before. I had done some freelance writing and published a regional hunting magazine. But 2013 was major breakthrough for me and my family. And with that magazine and that, that opportunity, I'd, I had already bear hunted quite a bit, but a long-time dream of mine was to go brown bear hunting in Alaska, which, as you might know, for most people, that's probably out of reach because if you're not an Alaskan resident, which if you are an Alaskan resident, you can hunt just on your general tag. If you're not an Alaskan resident, you have to use an outfitter, which can be very expensive. But as things went, I remember telling my wife, I said, one day I'm going to walk in this house and I'm going to tell you that I have secured an Alaskan brown bear hunt, and that is going to be an incredible day. Well, I thought that might be 10 years from then, but two years later, in 2015, I had worked out a deal with a brown bear outfitter, and I was going to Alaska. This would be my first time there. I, I, for all I knew, it would be the last time that I ever hunted Alaska. And I remember I secured the hunt in January and the actual hunt didn't take place until September and every spare moment that I spent that entire year I was thinking about being in Alaska it consumed my thoughts well September came and me and my good friend Scott Brown went up there we're hunting in south central Alaska on a river system we flew a beaver from civilization about 40 or 50 miles, a beaver is an airplane. And we landed it on the river where we were met by the outfitter and his guides. And his guides were two young guys that I really liked, still do. And after a day or two in camp with the main outfitter, we set off to spike camp. So me, Scott, and two guides went and set up a remote camp up this river. And the way that you hunt these brown bears is that there's smaller streams that feed into this big braided river and the salmon swim up from the ocean and they go back into the mouths of these creeks that come in from the mountains. That's where they had been born and they'd come back to spawn. There was bear sign everywhere, but I quickly realized how difficult it was to actually see a bear. This was going to be a 10-day hunt, and by the fourth or fifth day, we had yet to see a brown bear. So what we would do would be mornings and evenings, we would go sit on a high bank with some cover on the mouth of this creek within shooting distance of where we were seeing a lot of bear sign. I remember the first bear that I saw on the trip, which would actually be the only bears that we saw on the trip. I'm sitting on the cut bank side of a bend in this big creek. You can see salmon swimming all down in front of you. It's about 10 yards across to this gravel bar. And I'm sitting there with my traditional bow. This young guide who I've said I like so much is sitting right beside me. He's got his Marlin 4570 backing me up with the trad bow and this brown bear sow steps out on the gravel bar like 35 yards away and makes her way basically straight towards us and is inside of 15 yards. And now remember, 
First of all, we can't shoot this bear because it's a sow with cubs. Secondly, it's a sow with cubs, so it's a dangerous animal. We're within 15 yards of this bear on the ground. It, it does not know that we're there. And I have confidence in our situation because my buddy has his 4570 right over my shoulder. And all of a sudden, I start hearing a little movement right behind me. And my guide is filming with his phone over my shoulder. And when he does, he knocks his 4570, which is leaned up against a tree, knocks it over. The gun falls on my shoulder, rolls down my arm, and just plops onto the ground right in front of me, which, number one, is dangerous. Number two, the sow and both cubs just go whoop, lift their heads and just stare us down at less than 20 yards now. And he's got his iPhone up filming. And I'm thinking, holy cow, man, that is not a good time to make a mistake like this. And they pretty much ignored us and just continued milling around and fishing for, for several minutes before they were out of sight. When they left, I'll be honest with you, I scolded that dude. I was probably 33 years old, and uh, my guide was maybe 21. And again, I like this kid, but I was like, hey man, you got to bring your A-game around here. And we had a little laugh about it after I, for real, scolded him. That was probably on day five of a 10-day hunt. Well, that was the only bear we'd seen in five days between two hunters. And I started asking the guys, we were hunting one creek. We, had, we positioned our spike camp basically to hunt one creek, and that's where the salmon congregated, so that's where the bears congregated. And I said, man, is there another creek? I said, me and Scott need to split up. There's no sense in both of us hunting this same creek. We need to split up. And they said, well, there's a creek about eight miles up the river. And I said, well, why don't we go up there? I said, let's take three days worth of supplies and let's me and, and my guy go up there and camp on that creek and we'll leave Scott here. So we decided that's what we were going to do. I want to describe now these braided Alaskan rivers. If you've never been on one or seen one from the air or been on one in the water, they are very hard to understand. This this valley that we were in had big mountains almost in every direction, big snow-capped, you know, 9,000-foot-plus mountains. And these snow caps had been melting and feeding this river. And it, it the, the river is a light, grayish color from glacial teal. There's big glaciers up in the heads of these valleys. And this river, the further you go up it, you're going towards the head of the valley. The swifter the water gets and the narrower it gets. And this river in places was over a half mile wide. But in that half mile, there might be 25 to 50 separate braids that were separated by gravel bars and and willow flats. And the best way that I can describe an Alaskan river like that is they are angry. I mean, it looks like a war zone in those braided rivers with all the stumps and snags and this gray water that you can't see more than six inches. If you're standing in it and and water up to your shins, you can't see your feet. 
And because the water is colored the way that it is, you can't tell how deep some of these channels are. So we had a 16-foot aluminum John boat with a jet motor on it. This was a, a, a really strong vessel designed for going up these rivers. And me and my guide set out with a couple of days' supplies going eight miles up the river. But the braids change. That he didn't know the way. He didn't there was no main channel to go on. So it was really hard to tell, you know, do you go up that braid, that braid? There might be a big braid that looks like the way you need to go, but when you get up there, it very quickly turns four inches deep. And so you you'll be powering through and just gravel out. And then we'd have to jump out of the boat, push it, and then go back downstream, back to the Y and then take the the other braid, and we go up the braid, and we're just working our way. And we got about two miles from camp, and it had taken us a while, and, and we're not sure if we can make it eight miles, but I am dead set on getting up there. And I'll tell you why. For me, this was what I believed was a once-in-a-lifetime hunt, and probably what scared me more than anything, and it's kind of dumb to say this, but was not bringing home a bear. And if you've ever been on a big hunt, you, you, you probably understand what I'm saying. So every time that one of the braids would peter out and gravel out, I would say, let's go back. Let's go try another one. And, and we'd push the boat out of the gravel and float back downstream, spin the boat around, and go try to find another chute. And we'd get up there, and there'd be a huge log across it. We'd have to turn the boat around, go back down river 200 yards and go up another braid and, and a small braid might turn into a big braid and it was just this 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 maze of little streams going through these willow flats well we're now several miles from camp and we gravel out and we push the boat back get it spun around and get out into the main part of the river which at this point is probably 20 yards wide and deep and fast flowing. And I'm standing in the bow of the boat and we're going downstream, but I'm facing upstream. So my back is to the direction that we're going. My guide, he's in the back of the boat, standing up with his left hand on the tiller of the motor, which is the the twist throttle control and steering stick of that jet motor. And he is looking back upstream. We're trying to find which braid to go on. So both of us have our backs turned to the direction that we're going. And if you remember, I said that these Alaskan rivers are angry and they eat the banks and and there's trees that are just waiting to fall into the river around every cut bank where the pressure of the outside bend of, of the river is eroding away the bank. So I've got my back facing the direction that we're going. And just all of a sudden, I just feel a incredibly powerful, just bam, just slammed me in the back. And I just go tumbling through the boat. Head first, I go down. And my head is like, imagine my head on the touching the boat, the only part of my body touching the boat and my feet straight up in the air. That is the angle to which I saw the culprit for what had just happened because I see 
what we called widow makers. It was about an eight inch log that hung about 10 or 12 feet out from the cut bank of that river, a dead log. And I see that dead log while I'm upside down, hit the guide right in the chest. He's standing in the very back holding the stick and bam, that log takes him and we're going as fast as the current is taking us down the river with a little bit of throttle. And it hits him right in the chest and I see him go head over heels out the back of the boat. Ka-splash! And I am now, I now, that's what I saw when I was upside down and then I complete the somersault and I am now in the back of the 16-foot boat. I scramble to my feet and I see the guide in the water. He's wearing breathable waders, like breathable fishing waders. He's completely submerged. I see him come up out of the water, gasp for air. I know that he has all our communication equipment on him. He's got the sat phone on him. He had our fire starting equipment. He had all the important stuff on him. And here he is going downstream and I'm in the boat now. All I knew to do was just push that stick as hard as I could to the left and just whoom, just ram the boat up onto a gravel bar. I just needed to make this stop. And I, boom, get up on the gravel bar, and I'm yelling this guy's name, and I see him just floating down the river. The water is probably only, like, navel deep, like, just below his chest, but it's fast moving, so he can't really stand up. But I can see that he's gaining his footing as he goes down, and he's working closer and closer to the bank. And finally, 50 to 70 yards down from where I've pushed into this gravel bar, he makes his way crawls up on the bank, waders full of water, and it's over, and we're safe. When the, when the widow maker, the slog, hit me in the shoulders, I was really sore. It didn't really hurt me. I mean, it didn't break anything. I remember I had my traditional bow strung, laying in the bottom of the boat, and somehow me tumbling over that bow, unstrung the bow, It didn't damage it too bad, just banged it up. I was grateful to be alive. And as much as I had to take responsibility for what happened because I wasn't looking downstream, I was also, to be honest, upset with the guide for, you know, when you're out in a place you've never been, you kind of depend on the people you're supposed to depend on. And so I look back now and realize it was... It was my fault. I mean, I just have to take personal responsibility for pushing him to go up the river. And man, we just sat on the bank and he dried out. And this was the seventh day of a 10-day hunt. And it absolutely just took the steam out of me. It really scared me. I I was very, it, it just, Alaska is such a wild place. It's so remote. And if you've never been there, it's hard to understand what the place feels like. It's, it's romantic when you see it on TV, when you read about it. When you're there, it's in some ways, it's a lot less romantic, and it's just more real. And you realize how small mistakes will kill you. Those Alaskan rivers are waiting to kill you. That's just the truth. We didn't make it to the second creek. We went back downstream and went back to our camp. And we remained there for the final three days of the hunt. And I did not kill a brown bear. That's the story 
that I call the Widowmaker. I still get a little shook up when I recall the shock, surprise, confusion, and sheer force of that log clotheslining me off the bow of that boat. The aloneness and vulnerability you feel when something unpredictable happens in the wilderness is unnerving. We were lucky. No harm, no foul, though. But the scare truly humbled me and haunts me to this day. What's the healthiest thing that you can do for your pet? Feed them what they were born to eat with Darwin's fresh, raw food for dogs and cats. Darwin's customized meal plans support their ancestral diet with high protein, moderate fat, and low carbs. From shinier coats and softer fur to improved digestion and gut health, the health benefits are easy to see. Plus, there are no fillers, grains, or natural additives. Just farm-fresh, raw ingredients like USDA meats and organic vegetables delivered straight to your door from the freshest raw meals possible. With over 20 years of experience, choose Darwin's to see your pet thrive longer. Go to darwinspet.com and try 10 pounds for $14.95. That's darwinspet.com. Here's a simple but meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. A digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pictures of all the things that they can't be there for, from family vacation to their grandkids' graduation. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code BEAR. That's A-U-R-A, frames.com, promo code BEAR. Terms and conditions apply. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. The next story is told by Alaskan resident Chad Ferguson, a man who I've just met. You're just going to have to hear this one. I'm restraining myself by allotting minimal foreshadowing. Well, no foreshadowing. This story I call Gunslinger. My name is Chad Ferguson. I am originally from Ohio, but I tell everyone that I've lived as many places as 10 people. If you read any Hemingway, you'll probably encounter a quote from him that says, when you like to hunt and you like to shoot, you have to move often and always farther out. And that's been about the truth for me. So um, she and I were just talking about this the other day. This is our fourth autumn up here, actually. I have not been in Alaska very long. I thought I'd be here the day after I graduated from high school and just kind of got waylaid with this and that. But finally made a decision to come up here and uh, 
I'll never live anywhere else. And <laughs> well, I have lived in a number of places. Uh, I've lived in Wyoming. I've lived in Oregon. Um, lived in Pennsylvania, of course, where they've got black bears. Lived up here for a few years. And so I've seen a few bears in the wild. Not a lot of bears in the wild, but I've seen a few bears in the wild. And you can chalk this up to coming from the Midwest after too long down there, or you can chalk it up to reading too many Outdoor Life articles, or I don't know what. But I was certainly, I certainly had uh, a lot of bear fear. Like when I'm in the backcountry hunting here for caribou or moose or whatever, um, even ptarmigan, like I've always got bear spray with me or a 44 on me. So very bear aware, you know, like lifelong camper so you try to be smart you don't fry bacon and then crawl in your tent and you tr you say hey bear hey bear when you're walking through places where they might be and where they might not be able to hear you coming and just try to be smart and um so i would definitely characterize myself as somebody who is bear aware bear smart and bear afraid yeah, yeah in fact i'll tell you something i'll tell you something that i wrote in a, another essay and it's an anecdote about a guy that i met up here and he and his cousin, they grew up here. Well, anyhow, he and I were in the truck riding somewhere uh, when we were king salmon fishing. And he said to me, I'll tell you when I quit being afraid of bears. And of course, I'm all ears. He was bear hunting, actually bear baiting. And he had this big grizzly come in to the bait. And he said, that grizzly bear didn't make a sound. I mean, didn't even break one little twig. And it occurred to me, that if they can be that quiet anytime they want to, they could take you anytime they want to, and they don't, or they don't very often. And that's when I quit being afraid of bears. And boy, that made a lot of sense to me. That made a lot of sense to me, right? Because you can really make, you can worry yourself to pieces. It was a beautiful fall day. Quintessential autumn weather. I was moose hunting, it was early September. Blue skies, some light clouds now and then, and the colors were really starting to come on. I mean, everything was pretty. In fact, to this day, the desktop on my laptop, the, the background is uh, a picture that I took uh, from this trip. And it's just so pretty, it looks like it was painted by an impressionist painter. I was out for a week moose hunting. I had not been to this area before. It's a special walk-in area, and I'm I'm here to tell you that there's not enough of those here in Alaska. There's more ground than you could ever cover in 10 lifetimes, but you're going to need a plane, a boat, and some buddies that have planes and boats to go do it. But there are some walk-in sites. This one has a trail, and uh, you can take a bike on the trail, uh, a non-motorized, non non-electric bike uh, with a little trailer, which was my plan. In fact, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing here in a couple weeks, going back to the same area. And... Um, yeah, I was out for a week, solo moose hunting. I had not been here before. I had seen some moose, uh, some some guys that were sub-legal, as they say, less than 50 inches. And uh, then I saw one that was probably four, three miles from me for sure, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. And I was already eight miles in from the truck. So when you're solo, you know, hauling out, uh, you know, what could it be? I mean, it could be 900 pounds after he's, you know, gutted and skinned. You got to think about that, right? I mean, there's plenty of people that'll say, don't shoot a moose farther than a mile from the truck. 
uh, or the landing strip. And um, that just wasn't an option for me on this hunt. And in fact, a moose that I had watched for a couple of days on this trip, either him or one that was like him between where I was and that moose, uh, a couple of other guys went in after me and I told them I'd been watching this moose. And a couple of days later, they were coming out with a real nice one. So <laughs> I fancy that it was the one that I'd been watching and just didn't have the, uh, you know, gumption to go after. And that's something else I've had to learn about being up here is um, you don't want to be foolish, right? Um, and you always have to have a plan for recovering the game. But um, I'm pretty confident that people will figure it out, you know? Um, so if he's a little deeper than you wanted to be and it's going to be a little more effort, well, you just got to dig a little deeper. It was late afternoon, and I am eight miles into a walk-in unit. I had about an hour hike to get to a good glassing knob, and I had my rifle strapped to my backpack, a 308 bolt action strapped on my backpack and a 44 Magnum on my hip belt. I always carry bear spray with me, but that day it happened to be zipped in my backpack for some reason. But I round a corner on the trail, and I look up the trail about 50 yards, and there's a big brown bear. It would turn out to be a sow grizzly, and she's standing broadside. And she looked at me, and then she stood up, and stretched her neck out, and cocked her head, and then immediately went into a charge. And I mean, she was every bit of seven feet tall. And here she comes. So, is the only thing I could get out before I had to do something and I had no time to think I didn't feel any fear I didn't have any thoughts at all I just immediately unholstered my 44 put both hands on her and followed her in and she starts running down the trail towards me and at about 20 paces she stopped turned around and took two steps going away from me and then she looked back over her shoulder and I was still standing there she immediately flipped back around and charged again. And when she hit 12 paces, and those were measured off after the fact, I shot three times as fast as I could with my revolver, just right into the middle of the bear and hoped for the best. She winced at the shots, and I didn't know how many times I'd hit her, but it was almost like she'd been stung in the chest by hornets. She kind of pulled her paws up to her a little bit and recoiled a little bit. And uh, she turned at those shots and ran 30 yards back up the trail. And then she bailed off to the right uh, into the scrub. Um, the colors were just starting to get pretty. So the, the dwarf birch was starting to turn red and the willows were starting to turn yellow. And the brush in that area is about four or five feet high. She just disappeared into that off the trail. So I immediately, you know, holster my revolver, drop my pack, get my rifle undone, chamber around, dial it down to two X and I just start creeping up the trail, which might seem like kind of a crazy thing to do. Maybe it was the wrong thing to do, but <laughs> if I was gonna do any more hunting, I had to go forward, <laughs> not just that night, but you know, in the next few days. And I needed a dead bear, not a wounded bear. So again, I didn't even really think about it. It wasn't, it wasn't like I made a decision. I just got my rifle off, got the magnification dialed down, started walking up the trail. And I'm just like, you know, on the scope, off the scope, on the scope, off the scope, like looking for any patch of brown fur that I can see. And as soon as I see a patch of brown fur, I shoot right into it. I don't even know what part of the bear it is and chamber another round. And I'm watching for movement, trying to pick her up again. 
And then finally, just stretching my neck out and standing up real tall, I can see that she's laying there and she's still and that it's over. So, of course, I go up to her and um, as I'm walking up the trail, I can see every few feet there's a splattering of bright red blood um, off to the left of the trail. So I knew that I'd hit her in the heart or in the artery at least, but... uh, it almost immediately started to dawn on me just how incredibly lucky I was because she was only 12 paces from me at a full run and she's weighing 400 pounds is what I estimated her at. She was a very big bear. I could barely move her when I got up to her. At the shots, she decided to turn around and run back up the trail. And she ran 30 yards, which was a lot farther than she was close to me when I shot her. So she could have just as easily, flip of a coin, decided to keep on going forward. And while she was dead and didn't even know it, she could have knocked me down, broke me up, bit me up, maybe, you know, severely mauled or maybe even killed me and then died herself, you know? So it just occurred to me almost immediately how incredibly lucky I was on this. And the other part was that I'd hit her at all. I mean, I'm not Roy Rogers with a six-shooter, you know? I don't practice. I don't compete. I mean, I sight them in, sure. But, uh, you know, hitting a running target, like, that's not something you practice very often. So I just felt really lucky. So, you know, I, I start to, I try to get her moved around a little bit. I, I wanted to take some pictures, but I just couldn't move her. And it was also pretty late in the day for as far back as I was. And I knew that, since I had a tag, that area you don't have to have a locking tag. So if you have a hunting license and uh, the bears are in season, and they were, you know, I could tag the bear legally, and I was happy to do that because I was definitely going to be keeping this one. <laughs> you know, it would be easy for me to say that I'm a brave man, but that just wouldn't be the case. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm not a quarterback who's had to face down linemen coming across for that crushing sack. I'm not a veteran who's ever had to operate under fire. I've never rushed into a house that's on fire, anything like that at all. And um, I'm just happy I didn't run. (laughs) But next time I might run, you know, I mean, I hope not. But uh, there was no time for a reaction. Like I saw her, I said, I uttered that expletive. I immediately took my 44 out and there was just no thinking about it at all. And after everything happened that I told you, and from the time I saw her to the time that I was taking my pack off, I mean, it was less than 10 seconds. There she was, here she comes, bang, 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 and now she's running off. So you hear people say that I didn't have time to think or I didn't have time to be afraid, and that was absolutely the truth. So I get my pack off, you know, I shoot the rifle, I finally see that it's done, I walk up to her to see that she was not breathing. Probably should have put a safety round into her, to tell you the truth. That had been something else that would have been smart to do, but I didn't. You know, the African guys will tell you it's the dead ones that kill you. And I did feel very calm. I called my partner and uh, I told her what happened. I had one bar reception. And after that, I texted a couple hunting buddies. And I'm like, you would not believe just what happened. And 10 minutes later, I was shaking so bad I wouldn't have been able to hold a glass of bourbon. Chad is undoubtedly better trained with a pistol than he gives himself credit for. However, if he had it to do over again, the outcome could have been different. 
Encountering an aggressive grizzly at close range is a life-altering interaction that I'm certain imprints someone at the psychological level. And now, I'm totally speculating here, but probably even at the DNA level. Somehow our offspring know what almost killed us, and we make subtle amendments to adjust, trying to avoid the same fate. That was a good story, Chad. I'm glad you were prepared for the worst. Well, we'll end with a short story from Dr. Randall Williams, the resident historian of Meat Eater Incorporated. Randall spent eight years as a fishing guide in Alaska, and he's got a story. My name is Randall Williams. When I was 22 years old, I took an offer through a friend of a friend to go up and work at a fly-out fishing lodge in Alaska. I kept going back each summer and guided my last trip in the summer I got married of 2015. For all those years, I split my time and my worldly belongings between Montana and Alaska. Every year at the end of the season, I'd roll up all my stuff, underwear, t-shirts, and a couple pairs of jeans and a hoodie in a big blue plastic bag. These bags we used to pack fish for clients, and I'd tuck it all away in my cabin so that it was waiting for me the next summer. I had a pair of extra tufts that lived up at the lodge, and I had a big box of books. That way, I only had to fly with my fishing gear and my personal items. I had my Alaska stuff, and I had my Montana stuff. Now, late May through mid-July was king season. These were extremely long days with all that daylight, You wanted to be at your spot well before legal fishing hours at 6 a.m., and you're often going out after dinner until fishing closed at 11 p.m. In July, we started getting sockeyes, and then silvers and chums through August, and by late August into early September, we were targeting rainbows. It was an education to say the least, and I saw my share of wild, weird stuff. Bears, boat crashes, cabins getting swept down river, We even had the troopers come out and conduct a manhunt in the drainages around the lodge one spring. And another summer, we found a bunch of coffins and human skeletons from the old mining days as they washed out of an eroding cut bank. This was only in Alaska kind of stuff. But the biggest shock I think I ever faced up there happened on May 20th, 2014. And that was the day I flew out to the bush for the summer and realized the only pair of underpants I had were the ones I was wearing. Now, remember the clothes system I mentioned earlier? Well, that was a system that worked great until it didn't. I'm sure a lot of people that have worked intense seasonal jobs are familiar with this feeling. You get to the end of the season and you tell yourself, I am never coming back here. Long hours, hard work, nightmare clients. And in my case, at the end of the summer 2013, I'd gotten engaged a few months before I came out. I thought I was done. So at the end of that summer, I threw all my clothes in the burn barrel and torched it. And I forgot all about doing this until May of the following year. For a while, my lack of underwear was a crisis. You can imagine it's just about impossible to hit a strategically timed wash cycle in the middle of king season. And then the whole situation became a source of entertainment for everyone in camp. We kept a running tally. When I was asked to record this story, I reached out to my old boss to see if he could remember the details. His reply, I know it went on for over a month. I was just talking about that to some of the guides this summer. Another fellow I worked with replied, I know you broke two weeks for sure, maybe a month. Then another guy responded with a photo of the underwear in question, 
which we nailed up above the front door to the guide shack after the situation was resolved. Someone was finally able to fly out with a five-pack of Hanes and a special pair of Superman undies to celebrate. That photo shows a whole bunch of threads hanging from a stretched-out waistband nailed into a rundown shack, and next to it on the wall is a hand-drawn sign reading as follows. Certified. 33 days of continuous use. Randall Williams, June 23rd, 2014. Only in Alaska. You, my friends, have just been punked, and you walked right into it. It was almost as foolish as me standing on the bow of that boat looking upstream while we were heading downstream. Regardless of if you have clean underwear, Alaska is a wild place. From raging angry rivers to cold nights under a mountain goat hide to charging grizzlies, Alaska's stories are forever intriguing, and we're just getting started. I can't thank you enough for listening to Bear Grease. Hunting season is upon us. Be sure to check out First Light for all your hunting clothing this year, including whitetail and waterfowl gear. I've been wearing First Light for almost a decade, and it would be hard for me to wear anything else. And thanks to everyone who bought a Phelps Acorn Grunt and Bleat call. They sold out in about 24 hours. We're trying to get some more made as quick as we can, so stand by. I hope you've got big plans this fall. Be careful out there and have some adventure. Just be aware of what's going on around you. I can't wait to talk to all the folks on the render this week about these Alaskan stories. Ever need something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit aarons.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule and it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com grease today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's betterhelp.com slash grease. 